AMSA partner, Becker Professional Education, provides exclusive pricing to AMSA members for USMLE review preparation. Save up to 25% off their live online and live review programs along with their guided learning resources and extensive question bank. Visit becker.com slash AMSA for more details. The ACGME voted this year to change the rules on work hour restrictions, allowing interns to work up to 24-hour shifts plus an additional four hours of transitions in care, an increase from the 16-hour shift restrictions that were previously in place. So this change goes into effect this month in July, but how can you stay resilient going into your intern year with this change in place? Welcome to the AMSA AdLib Podcast, we're here from med students and experts alike. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. Dr. Pranay Sinha was one of the residents placed in the iCompare trial years ago, and as a result actually was working longer shifts than the 16-hour restrictions put in place at the time. In Dr. Sinha's personal opinion, at the end of a 28-hour shift, you're so tired and you're working so hard to keep up. You're not quite there cognitively and you're not in a position to receive knowledge or think or dive deeply into clinical reasoning and clinical knowledge by the end of the shift. And looking at the changes put in place by the ACGME, he feels that a lot of studies look at what happens to patients, finding that there were possibly no difference between the, the 28-hour calls versus the shorter shifts. But those studies aren't necessarily based on the outcomes of interns themselves. Dr. Daniel H. Gauger, AMSA's 2017-18 Education and Advocacy Fellow, spoke with Dr. Sinha on ways to stay resilient during your intern year as the longer work hours go into effect. Here's Dr. Gauger. Welcome everyone to the AMSA AdLib podcast. My name is Dr. Daniel Gauger, Education and Advocacy Fellow at the American Medical Student Association. With us we have Dr. Pranay Sinha. So, um, Pranay, could you give us a little bit of an introduction? Absolutely. Um, I am actually a recent graduate of the Yale Internal Medicine Residency Program. Uh, and this year I'm working as a hospitalist, uh, as an overnight hospitalist at Yale, uh, working primarily in the hemonc and step-down units. Uh, and this is sort of a year of uh, self-discovery and, and sort of self-improvement for me, um, where I'm trying to work on my clinical skills a little bit more, uh, doing some research and advocacy for tuberculosis in India, which is my passion. I'm going to be an infectious disease doctor specializing in tuberculosis. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, it's a really exciting year, lots of little projects that I'm doing, one of which is thinking a little bit more about finding joy in residency. And uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you about this stuff, Dr. Daniel. So uh, on a related note to that, you know, one of the things that – I know you do a lot of is writing and I saw that you have written an op-ed that ran in a few different places like HuffPost um, and I think maybe even Kevin MD but it was called A Medical Intern Writes to His Future Self and you talked about your dream of being an eccentric train conductor with an affinity for shoe polish and writing novels which is great so you know I thought that posed an interesting question, though. Many people look at extracurricular things um, as just simple CV boosters, but what do you think the larger significance is of remembering who we are and once were outside of medicine? It's a, it's a really it's a great question, and it's, it's one that sometimes seems theoretical in residency because 
uh, I think bioessence is so challenging because our identities as physicians threaten to swallow our identities overall uh, completely. Uh, but I think it is so important to stay true to who you are uh, and to continue the, you know, the aspects of your identity outside medicine. Um, because, because, you know, we, we spend so much time, you know, uh, trying to improve other people's lives and saving other people's lives. Uh, but it's hard to value those lives unless you have one of your own. Um, you know, in, in residency, I met my wife and she's been such a big part of my, my life and, and, and it helps me relate to my patients in a completely different way and, and actually have far more empathy when I see them, um, you know, uh, get, like, for example, if I see a wife uh, losing her husband uh, or vice versa, I sort of have a far deeper and more personal understanding of what that must be like. Um, and and that that is what prevents me from uh, developing that depersonalization, which is an aspect of burnout. Uh, and and I, I do that through having a life of my own, having my own relationships with my parents, my friends, my, you know, um, my wife. Um, so, so I feel like um, it's really, really important to to keep uh, your interests outside medicine alive in residence, um, uh, to stay human and to stay a good physician. So you brought up an interesting word that I maybe I want to spend some time drilling down a little bit more. You talked about depersonalization. So, you know, do you think that in residency, physician becomes our whole identity? and that we lose those other components? It's very easy for that to happen, I think. You know, I mean, you're working 80 hours a week, uh, at least, and uh, you're coming home, you're sleeping, you don't have a whole bunch of time for other things. And so if all you're doing is, is come to work, you know, work and go home and then repeat, then, then yes, I think uh, the physician identity can take over entirely. And I think that's uh, a huge amount of angst that is felt by residents is regarding that, is, is regarding the fact that this is my life now. Do you think in, ed- in education, in medical education, whether we are talking about medical school or are we talking about residency, do you think that physicians and physicians in training are taught to be you know, self-aware and, and introspective and reflective about their experiences and the things that they encounter working in the clinical setting? Oh, I definitely, um, well, you know, I think it, it varies based on where you go for residency and, and the kind of clinical volume that you see and, and um, things like that. At Yale, I was very fortunate. You know, I think we have um, good, you know, we have a, we have a clinically heavy uh, service. We, we, we work very hard. We see a lot of patients. Uh, but I think our recent reports, for example, are places where we can be quite introspective about at least uh, the, the sort of the clinical medicine and stuff like that. Now, if you're talking about introspective and reflective about, you know, more existential issues, I, um, again, I think at Yale, we tried with uh, recent reflection rounds and intern reflection rounds uh, where we get together. That said, you know, these are quite artificial venues. Um, they're definitely wellness. Committees, they're sort of mushrooming across 
the country that uh, that sort of encouraged things like uh, yoga and meditation, and, and I'm sure a lot of people benefit from it. Uh, I think, though, uh, it's definitely something. That's why I write. You know, you mentioned why. You know, you mentioned the fact that I spent a lot of time writing. That's that's kind of how I got through residency. Uh, the reason I wrote a lot was to understand what I was going through um, and to come to terms with it. And so, writing was my coping mechanism. Uh, so certainly, uh, that helped me get through residency. So, uh, but I've met a lot of residents who feel so busy, so overwhelmed. Uh, not necessarily my program, but uh, who feel so busy, so overwhelmed that they don't uh, practice those introspective things. Uh, and sometimes they actually get into unhealthy coping mechanisms, such as drinking and uh, uh, drinking excessively. That is, um, and, um, and 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 that's where you know. Uh, the unraveling happens. So you you mentioned the reflection rounds, and I know that we've also talked about um, your Yale writing workshops. Could you tell us a little bit more about those things? Oh yeah, they were wonderful. So um, I really wish that uh, other schools also um, really uh, played up this uh, humanities side of the curriculum. So um, at Yale, uh, we are blessed to have so many excellent physician writers. Um, I, you know, we had Richard Salzer who was here. Uh, he passed away, as did uh, Shep Newland, who wrote the famous book, How We Die. Uh, but even now, we have uh, people like Lisa Sanders, who wrote this great book called uh, Every Patient Tells uh, a Story. We've got Anna Reisman, who loved, writes lovely pieces all the time. She just had a recent piece about uh, taking the boards as a uh, middle-aged physician in the New England Journal of Medicine, which I thought was a beautiful essay. Um, so uh, we have wonderful writers. And my program director, Dr. Siegel, um, uh, he is. Uh, he did his bachelor's in English, and he is uh, an excellent writer, uh, you know, uh, himself. So uh, I was very, very lucky to be in a program where writing is appreciated. Uh, in fact, um, I I wrote an op-ed in my intern year um, on intent suicide, and and I was. I don't think it would have been published had had I not had such a strong community of writers supporting me. Um, uh, and helping me temper my uh, my sort of uh, the statements that I was making in the uh, in in the uh, in the piece, and so we have a writers workshop that happens. Uh, it used to happen annually, now it's every other year uh, because it's kind of uh, it's an expensive proposition. Uh, but uh, it's a cool, it's a very cool thing where we get together for two days. Our chiefs make sure that we get that time off if we select. Uh, the way you get selected is you put in a piece that you've written. They look at the piece if it's a if it's a good piece, it's worth sort of developing more than you get invited to the workshop. It's an intensive two-day session where you uh, receive criticism on your piece, well, critique of your piece, and um, and you critique the piece of other people, uh, other writers in the room as well. Uh, and you also learn some important writing skills um, during that period. Uh, and at the end of those two days, you, achieve, you emerge with these excellent new skills in writing, and you also actually get to improve your piece uh, during those two days. And I did this with my wife, and we had a great time. My wife is co-resident, so it's um, doing the same thing. Uh, and, and I think that definitely uh, helped improve my writing um, to a certain extent. We also have writing electives, uh, where you can spend time with uh, Lisa Sanders, um, and she helps uh, so she uh, sort of, I, I, I didn't do the writing lecture myself, a lot of my friends have, and they, they said they benefited from it a lot. 
and this is more for op-ed Python. Uh, I, I know that Lisa Anna recently does multiple uh, uh, sort of op-ed workshops, um, uh, which help residents see more. Uh, you know, I know Daniel, that you do a lot of advocacy, so I think uh, this, this uh, these sort of workshops really help EL residents become better advocates through their writing, uh, which is a very very powerful thing to do. Um, and we're also starting an op-ed project now at Yale. I know this is a resident called Emily Pinto-Taylor, and she's uh, been getting that uh, set up. So um, so I think um, I think there's a very strong culture of messy humanities at Yale, uh, and, and that's, that's really sort of helped me um, as I've gone through residency. Uh, and I'm really grateful that I came here because I could have readily seen, like as a medical student, it's very interested in writing, but I'm, I could have readily seen going to a program that didn't value my sort of non-technical writing, uh, and that would have made me stop writing uh, in residency. But I came to a program that really encouraged it and kept me balanced, and that was phenomenal. So I think that that hits on a um, a topic that we've sort of danced around, and I know that you've written a lot about is, you know, the culture of medicine and valuing performance and, and technical skill acquisition or, you know, you know, technical competence above all things. And you've described it as this, you know, very machismo type of culture. So, you know, through writing and maybe with other tools, how did you learn to hold on to, you know, your joy and your fulfillment and be resilient in a system that challenges you in that way? So I think uh, <clears throat> this goes back to my intern year. And I did my first inpatient rotation and it was really rough. Um, I, you know, I think uh, as, you know, I think as all interns and residents realize, well, every individual rotation is a different piece. Uh, you know, different residents, attendings, and interns interact with each other differently. And so your experience can vary hugely. But I will just say that it was a very tough start for me in, in residency. Um, I felt like I was having a difficult time presenting patients in a succinct way. Uh, my knowledge is obviously, uh, you know, not where... Uh, it is today, and um, you know, like the little things, like um, like ordering tests correctly, and and you know stuff like that, that was hard. Um, and I, I, I felt like, and actually, people who knew me during that time said that I was always very happy, very very smiley. And I realized that I never, I never felt like that within. I felt very very upset. Um, and so I realized that that external demeanor that I was putting on was a complete, you know, like, was, was machismo, was me trying to say that, oh, listen, you know, I'm doing so great in this difficult, uh, I wasn't showing my inner moral distress at all uh, during that period. And uh, just at that period, right, right as my intern, uh, as that inflation rotation was ending, two interns in, in New York City uh, committed suicide. And, and I was just left thinking about what, you know, what sort of experience it must be to make somebody go from rejoicing the end, the graduation of uh, medical school, which is such a huge moment for all of us, to go from that sort of jubilation to the desperation uh, that drives one to commit suicide, where one feels so trapped. And I realized part of it was this sort of emotional constipation that we all have as 
physicians like this need to demonstrate that we have uh, physical, uh, has perhaps intellectual prowess and certainly sort of maybe emotional prowess beyond what we actually present, you know, to show that we are unruffled by very difficult circumstances. And, you know, I think uh, it's not something, I feel like, I, I, so I wrote this piece in the New York Times uh, that sort of was received rather well. I don't think I said anything that was extraordinary. I think I said stuff that, uh, I think I said stuff that we all say um, and we all admit privately to each other. Um, but all I did was I sort of just decided to go ahead and write up how I felt and and send it to the Times. And, and that was just like a thousand one shot that they accepted it. And, uh, and, and and so I'm and I'm glad that that piece got some attention, and I've heard from residents and interns from across the country who've um, and, and and even higher ups who've sort of uh, felt like that touched them somehow. That piece, uh, which which comes back to the power of writing, and and I think when you have an experience like that, such a positive experience, uh, that something you write can actually help people who you've never met, who you will probably never meet. You want to do more and more of it. So um, so I realized that. Writing is a great way to express vulnerability, and and I feel like that is how you get over a culture of machismo is by encouraging vulnerability. So now, you know, from from that I learned as an intern was I'm just going to stop trying to pretend that I'm I'm a dude who gets everything. Uh, I I decided I was just going to let people know that I don't know this. Uh, Rounds I was like, but I just, I don't know what it is that you said. Can you tell me? Can you teach me a little bit about that? As a result, what happened was that I learned more as an intern and I was less afraid and I was less stressed out because it's like, hey, if I don't know something, I'll just let them know that I don't know something. It doesn't mean that I'm an idiot. It just means that I have gaps in my knowledge, just like everybody else. And I think once once enough people start doing that, the culture of a place changes. Uh, at Yale, fortunately, vulnerability was an option because we had an understanding group of residents and physicians and attendings. So... So I was fortunate to be in a place where my my exercises in vulnerability were well received, um, and I feel like that should be the case everywhere. So if you're trying to get over that culture of machismo, the best way to do that is to not be punitive when somebody expresses their vulnerability, but instead using that as an opportunity to support them through whatever it is. And chances are that you have your own vulnerabilities and you want other people to be supportive when you... Uh, come out to them rather than um, you know them being punitive and, and diminutive of you uh, in that in that moment. Um, and so I feel like that is my sort of take on uh, culture of machismo. I certainly try to do that as an attending. If some if an intern or medical student doesn't know an answer, I, I sort of am not like, oh my god, you should you know what's wrong with you? Didn't you read? Uh, I, you know like that's 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 not productive. That's just going to make them feel crappy, and they still don't know the thing. The best thing you can do is be like, oh, you know, hey, uh, you know, I remember, like, I learned that quite late in my intern year. Let me tell you about what I learned. And and then it's a far healthier culture um, that you're dealing with. So you've you've hinted on, you know, the or directly addressed rather this larger cultural shift, you know, a change in the paradigm. And you know, we know that there is research out there that describes the physician personality or, you know, what are some characteristics of typical physicians? And we're kind of illustrated in this trifecta of having an over-exaggerated sense of responsibility mixed with unending guilt and ongoing self-doubt. And all of those things 
probably contradict us to feeling comfortable with being vulnerable. So uh, vulnerability isn't comfortable. And you talked about culture shifts within your institution. Um, but I want to know what you think, for example, like your reflection rounds and like your writing workshops, what are other ways that programs and systems can make concerted formal efforts to create those spaces for us young physicians to be vulnerable? You know, I'm actually going to take a part of your question before I get to the second, the first part a little bit more. You talk about the, the personalities. You know, it's something that I actually realized on my last day as a resident um, was that nothing had changed. You know, when I had come into medical school, now I have this MD after my name. I'm like, oh my God, I'm a doctor now. I got to know the answer to stuff. But the nurse comes up to you and says, hey, the PTT is 59. What do you want to do? And you're like frozen. Absolutely. And that's what I mentioned in my letter. And so I think one thing that I feel like interns coming in still have this sort of it's like ridiculous sense of self now, you know, you were no different before you got your MD as a medical student than you are like five minutes after you get your MD. Arguably, you probably know more at the end of your third year than you do at the end of your fourth year because a lot of us spend uh, a lot of fourth year interviewing and holidaying. So um, I feel like the one thing I wish could be done is when medical school students graduate from medical school, I think their achievement should be celebrated, but they should be get a, given a more realistic sense of what to expect going into intern year. They should be told that, hey, listen, congratulations, you've done this amazing thing. We think you have the potential to be a great doctor, but you have to go through residency first, okay? Don't expect to know everything. If you, if you could handle the workload, you wouldn't need to go through residency. Okay, so I feel like I saw that in like my last year as an intern, as a, as a resident, I see the same pattern in my in my intern. Poor thing, she's uh, she doing a great job. Uh, she's absolutely wonderful, so smart, way smarter than I was as an intern. And yet, like I see her like stressing out about things. I see this glazed look in her eye, kind of like a frenetic uh, sort of um, energy to her. So I, I told her, listen, you need to actually take that white coat off go down to the cafeteria, sit by the water fountain, eat food, relax, and come back in 30 minutes. I will cover your patients in the meanwhile. And she, she, was, she was like so resistant at first to even doing that because somehow she felt like taking my help for that half an hour somehow was beneath her now that she was a doctor. And, and fortunately, she listened to me and she felt a whole lot better after she came back uh, with, with a belly full, full, of, full of food and some time to reflect and relax. So I feel like that masochistic, almost like, it's not a masochist, it's not exactly masochistic, but it's um, that weird sense that new interns have. Um, you know what, let me just actually go back and rephrase all of this, because I feel like I could say this about better. Mm. I think, um, I'm going to start the answer to the question at the beginning, it's mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Daniel, I want to answer the first part of your question, actually, before I get to the second part. The first part is um, who goes into medicine and, and the kind of personalities that we develop. I think a very, very key part of it is what happens between medical school and intern year. You know, in medical school, we're handling two or three patients, maybe four patients, and we feel real good about ourselves. As an intern, you're handling ten. And there's something about the way we graduate medical students that confers a... Um, 
false expectation upon themselves. And they come in with like insane self-expectations that they can't possibly meet. You know, if you could handle the workload of internal investment here, you wouldn't need to do it. Uh, and I see this, and I, I felt this as an intern. I felt as an intern that I should handle it all, which is why when I realized that I couldn't handle it all, uh, there was this such a, such a crushing sense of disappointment. Um, and I felt it back three years ago when I was an intern, and I still see the exact same thing now. On my last day as a, as a resident, my intern, poor thing, she'd been working so hard doing such a great job, but she was still feeling disappointed in herself. And she was ignoring her personal needs, like talking about self-care. She was just like, she hadn't eaten. She'd had some water and maybe a granola bar. And, uh, and she was like, just looking frenetic and crazy. And I should, I should tell her, like, leave your white coat here. Leave your pager here. I'll handle things for half an hour. Go and have lunch. And she was not even, like, happy by doing that until I, like, was a little bit more firm with her. and said, as a resident, I'm telling you, you need to go down and have your lunch. I'm going to handle stuff. Then she finally did it and felt a whole lot better after it. But that insane self-expectation that we develop um, somewhere between medical school and, and, uh, and residency, I think that is the cause of a lot of distress, at least early on in intern year. Um, and I, I definitely want that to be addressed. So if I were ever the dean of the medical school, um, uh, which I don't plan to be, but if I ever were, at graduation, I would tell my medical students, hey, listen, congratulations, you've done something really, really amazing by graduating medical school. Don't think, though, that you are ready. No, it's going to be hard. You will not know everything, um, you know, starting in 10 years, and that's okay. You know, like letting, giving them an allowance and an expectation for the difficulty and their, you know, initial um and the, the, the steepness of the learning curve, I think that is something that doesn't happen adequately. What we're often told is, hey, congratulations, you've done this, you're going to conquer the world, it's amazing, you know, like the same kind of stuff that you get at the end of college. And I think that's, that's a maladaptive thing to do. Uh, one of the best things that anybody ever did for me um, in that period was uh, of a program director, Dr. Siegel. He came up to us individually and said, you're starting intern year, just know that I don't expect anything of you. Like, like I don't expect you to know anything. Just come in with your enthusiasm and your good work ethic, and you're going to become a great doctor. But nothing is expected of you right now. You finished medical school, but this is hard. And, and you know, uh, I feel like the fact that he said that made me feel so much easier um, when I didn't know things. So uh, I feel like that expectation is, is super, uh, super important. And then on a programmatic level, what can be done, I think, again, like emphasizing this, uh, having uh, already uh, at Yale, we have a very graded responsibility. Like, we don't just like fling interns to their doom on day one. We sort of, you know, we watch over them and we take care of them and gradually let them take more responsibility as the time comes. And that's great. Um, and the other thing I think I wish happened more was that there was a, a boot camp for medical students. And I think many schools do have variations at this. But I feel like fourth year, uh, I think structurally is unsound. And I know this is not a popular opinion for a lot of us. Fourth year was a lot of fun and a lot of people would not change a single moment of it. But I do think that um, that huge gap between third year and intern year uh, can, uh, can, can be deaf detrimental uh, to your uh, to your mental health when you start in third year because you're like, oh my God, you know, I was so good in, in third year. What's happened to me? 
because a lot of people do their uh, sub-internships early on in fourth year. So there's a good seven, eight-month gap sometimes for people between like any hardcore medicine and and then um, and then intern year. So I feel like at the end of inter- at the end of fourth year there should be programs to make sure that it, uh, that uh, you know medical students have uh, the core skills that they need to be good interns. Things like Stanford 25, but even beyond that, like basic stuff. So they hit the ground running, and that you know if if you are capable of at least someone, I'm, I'm not expecting anybody to be prepared for intern year, but um, Every little bit helps. Like I did my last sub internship in March, and that totally helped me uh, to deal with some of internia. If I hadn't done that, I think I would have been in far deeper trouble than I was. Um, so I feel like that's an important programmatic change to be made uh, in medical school. So, what kind of final advice do you have then for? our brand new interns who are working across the country in July on, you know, being resilient amidst this huge onslaught of new responsibility and performance that is so different from just a short few months ago. I think, I think the number one advice I could give, uh, is to find community. Uh, and, 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 Find a community and nurture and tend to it. And by that, by what, that what I mean by that is, A, uh, if you're alone, you will not realize that everybody else is going through what you're going through, and you're more likely to feel isolated and, and you'll be more, risk, more at risk of burnout. So definitely um, have a community. Number two, by tending the community, I mean... Uh, I think it's helpful to hang out with people at, you know, at all costs, but sometimes it can be toxic. You know, I think there can be, the conversation can be very, um, like too much venting, like a little bit of venting is helpful. Too much venting is toxic. Um, and I think that's actually one of my, one of my beefs with the national conversation on burnout is that a lot of it is unproductive and some of it is even hyperbolic. And it can jaundice our view. Um, there's a book that I never recommend that anybody reads uh, before residency, and that is House of God, uh, because I feel like that sort of it's got a very tough. You know, I, I understand the message is, is a noble one, and I think uh, Dr. Shem had uh, a, uh, a good intention with the book, really, and like he wants the book to be about communication. But and un- unfortunately, a lot of the book. Um, can jaundice you. And I feel like that's exactly what can happen um, with, with toxic communities where you're only sort of talking about how crappy it is. So tend to a community, not just, don't just sort of talk about what a terrible time you had and also talk about what a great time you're having. I, I think being a resident was actually an amazing experience. And I, I love I being a doctor and I love in the present tense being a doctor uh, because of the everyday little joys that are accessible to us. I mean, just think about it, like, you know, like for all the misery of not sleeping and uh, the difficult schedules, the missed wedding, the lack of control about your schedule, for all of that, on a daily basis, you get to help somebody. You get to, you know, you get to tell people that it's going to be okay, or you get to help them transition, you you get to help them, uh, help transition them uh, to a death with comfort and dignity. Uh, You solve problems big and large. Uh, you co-author chapters of people's lives. You know, it's incredible what we do. 
you see your friends being noble, you get to be noble yourself. Uh, you get to meet fantastic people, honestly, as patients. I think every patient, um, you know, can be special. And this sounds like, you know, this sounds very woo-woo and very crazy, uh, and, but it really is true. Um, if you, if you spend some time uh, with your patients, you'll, you'll get to know them. My wife is in the habit of asking, uh, her family, uh, her patients about their love stories. And, and we've heard some amazing ones, uh, over the course of the years. So, um, I think those are little joys that are accessible to us in residency. Um, again, I'm not saying that, res- that it's just all about your attitude. You know, yes, people, life can suck sometimes, you know. Olives can be prickly. People who you really loved can die. Things happen. Bad things happen. So it's not just your attitude. But what I'm saying is that don't let the gray haze of residency, you know, blind you to the little joys that you are privileged to have every day in residency. And so when you tend to your communities, make sure that along with your frustrations, you also share those joys because then you will provoke those uh, lovely stories from your colleagues as well. And and that'll be, at least maybe it'll build your resiliency. I don't have any randomized control trials to say that this is the case, but I, my personal experience has been that uh, those little stories have helped me get through, uh, have helped me get through residency. Uh, I had a patient um, who was young, 20, he was like in his, middle 20s and was dying of AIDS and we did so much we couldn't do a lot for him but what we could do for him my team and I we got together and we bought him shoes uh, that he liked he liked Jordans and we got him like a cheap pair of Jordans from Amazon and you know I saw him he actually didn't die um, in my in my second year he's still alive and I went and saw him a few days ago and he's you know again he's not doing great but the one thing he did that made him smile was when I brought up the shoes. I said, hey, do you still have them? He said, of course I have them. And he smiled at me, despite all the things that he's going through. Um, and and like, it's stuff like that that gets you through the day. you know. And once you start noticing it, there is no end to it. Um, I, talk, I talk a lot about one of my interns um, who, at the end of a long day, basically just said, um, I don't think I helped anybody today. And she just seemed so so despondent. So I had to actually sit her through this and say, hey, listen, look, you sent this patient to their wife and child who've been waiting for him for six months. You, you know, you helped explain this person's illnesses to his parents so that they're less worried now. You did all these things. And I think only then when I, when I put it so like explicitly, then she realized, uh, because she was drowning in paperwork, so she didn't realize all the good that she'd done. So I hope that she has now started noticing all those little things that we do um, uh, without realizing it. So have a community, tend to it, notice the joys in your life along with the, the miseries and you will get through residency. And it does get easier and life after residency is amazing. So there's a lot for budget. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson, Dr. Daniel Gauger, and myself. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Joey Johnson is AMSA's national president. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for listening. AMSA partner, Becker Professional Education, provides exclusive pricing to AMSA members for USMLE review preparation. 
Save up to 25% off their live online and live review programs along with their guided learning resources and extensive question bank. Visit becker.com slash AMSA for more details.